Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and as always, this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. If you haven't been on our website before, please check that out. Uh, We try to post some articles every once in a while. We have some book listings on there that you can purchase. Uh, Some of the books that we review and that we recommend, we do carry in our bookstore. And so there's, there's a number of things on there. Check out the website if you can. A while back, I had mentioned in a podcast I was going to do an episode on books that everybody owns but nobody's reading and I've decided I'm going to do that today I'll take you through this uh, a brother in the church he rec- he reminded me that I had talked about doing an episode on that and so I want to loop, loop back around to it and actually do that today as we talk about books and sets of books that everybody owns but nobody's reading there's no particular order to this list but I want to address two questions first of all when I talk about why people own these books, and then second, why nobody's reading them. And after we answer both of those questions, then we'll talk about books and titles in particular. And I want to say from the get-go, this is one man's opinion. You might get some different opinions from, you know, different brethren, especially preachers, if you talk to them. But this, this is some thoughts that I want to share with you. This has to do with building your library and books that you get recommended. So we'll start off by talking about reasons people own these books. Some of these titles people own because they recognize them. Uh, People want to start building their library and they have good intentions. It's kind of like a New Year's resolution. You have all these grand schemes of what you're going to do at the beginning of the year and you get motivated and so you go out and you start making plans and then you never fulfill them. It's kind of where we are with some of these books that people own but don't read. They have good intentions when they buy them, but they go out and they're wanting to buy something. They're wanting to build their library. They don't know where to begin and so they go down to your half-price bookstore or or their Barnes and Nobles, or they get on Amazon nowadays, and they purchase books that they recognize. They don't really know anything about it. They're wanting to do good. They're wanting to have some books, and so they they think about the books that they saw their father owned, or their grandfather owned, or a brother at church, or a preacher that they're familiar with, and so they, they go and they purchase what is familiar to them. And we'll talk about some of those books as we go along. Uh, Another way that people start buying books is they think, okay, I need to have some books to study the Bible out of. And so one of the easiest ways to accomplish that, instead of buying individual books on different books of the Bible or on different subjects, I'll just buy a commentary set. And so uh, I need to find a commentary set and, again... A lot of times they purchase a commentary set based on what they recognize from having been in somebody else's library, or they'll ask for recommendations for people, and that's why they purchase the commentary set. It's not necessarily because they have used the commentary set before or worked with it. They just think, I need to have a commentary set. I recognize this. Somebody said something about this. I've heard it quoted, so I'll, I'll just go and purchase this. And this, that takes us to another one. One of the reasons people buy studs is because they hear things quoted. You know, when our preachers preach, you hear a lot about Adam Clark. You hear about uh, Barnes Notes. You hear James McKnight. You hear Kyle and DeLitz. You hear Thayer. You start hearing names. 
some names more frequent than others, and so we hone in on those and we purchase those books. And uh, we'll talk more about things that we hear quoted uh, momentarily. And then the last one, and we've talked about this just briefly, is that books were recommended. I think it is a good idea when you're wanting to start reading and studying the Bible more in depth that you go to people who know books and read books and ask them what they've learned from. Now, I give a caveat to that. What helps one person doesn't necessarily help another. And why one person uses a book may not be beneficial to another. So you have to keep that in mind, and we'll talk some about that as we go along. Uh, the second area we want to talk about is why people don't read them. The number one reason I would say that people own books that they don't read is because they don't read. Now that seems obvious, and maybe that's an oversimplification, but we're not a reading people. And we don't have the discipline that is necessary to make it through some of the books that are recommended and that people own. And we'll talk more about that, but I think that's a major issue. We don't read. And so we get recommended books that are good books. Maybe books that we should own, maybe books that we should read, but we don't read them because we're not a reading people and we're not ready to do the work that's necessary to mine for the gold that is in the book. Difficulty of reading is like number two reason why people don't read books that they're recommended. And we'll talk some about that as we go along too. Uh, when we talk about difficulty of reading, we're talking about the language that is used uh, some books are more technical in their terminology that they use, or they're antiquated, and we're not as familiar with terms and style. We view the either the writing style or the content itself as dry and boring, and by that I mean we're, we're not readily seeing the application to my life. And let's just face it, whenever most of our folks read books, they are application-driven. What does this mean for me? How can I use this? And if they can't find the application within about five minutes of reading, they quickly fall away from using or reading the book. Application-driven concepts are difficult when it comes to reading and also when it comes to teaching. Uh, we get application-focused or focused isn't even really the right word. It's what drives us. We get obsessed with application, and that's very detrimental in our studies and our ability to develop as a Christian. Probably we need to take an episode and just talk about application-driven teaching sometime, but anyway, uh, before we get sidetracked on that rabbit trail, when we talk about difficulty and the dryness, the antiquated nature of the book, sometimes the problem with the book is we're simply able, not able to comprehend what is being put towards us. Or if we are able to comprehend it, it takes too much work and we're not willing to do the work. And as a result, a lot of good books sit on our shelves and people don't read them. I've been into Brethren's Homes that they have a fairly decent library. and I'm looking at their books and it becomes very evident very quickly that they have not read any of their books. They've purchased them because they were told they needed to have this book, that they were, uh, they recognized somebody else had this, they know by quotations that this is a great book, but they've never sat down and read the books because they're difficult and they're not willing to use them. And so when we talk about books today, the, uh, specific titles that everybody owns and nobody reads, there's a variety of reasons why people own them. There's... Um, a less variety of reasons why people aren't reading them. And so kind of keep all this background in mind as we go through the list. I want to start out by talking about sets. Uh, 
again, people think about building their library and they think, well, I don't have an unlimited resource of money to dedicate toward this, and so I'll buy a set, and that will give me a good comprehensive view. Um, problem with sets is that they are limited in scope. They have strengths and weaknesses. We've talked about this some on our program, but uh, mainly we we purchase sets that aren't necessarily helpful to us. I'll give you an example. I've I bought a lot of libraries. I, I'm a book dealer. I've purchased libraries off of preachers who are retiring, preachers from Church Christ background, preachers from denominational backgrounds. And one of the sets that I find in a lot of these libraries are the Nicene, the Anti-Nicene, and the Post-Nicene Fathers. This is a set of, I don't know, 50-plus volumes. It's a huge set. It takes up a tremendous amount of material. When I first started preaching and I started building my library, that's one of the sets that stood out in my mind because I've seen it in bookstores, I've seen it in people's libraries, and I just thought, you know, this is probably a set that people have. And I never purchased the set because I didn't have the money to invest in it, but as time has gone on, that is almost a complete waste of money because nobody's going to sit down and read through 60 volumes of that material. I don't know that that's a wise use of time, first of all, but second of all, people just aren't going to do it. It's more of a research or a reference set when you're studying topics, the history and the origin of different positions, and you want to know what the early church fathers said. It's helpful to, to have that material, but you're not going to do that type of study, typically speaking, when you're teaching at a congregational level. This is more for research and professors in the academic level, and if you were to do that type of uh, study, you go down to the library and use the volumes there or at a good theological library. You can find it and use it. It is not worth investing the money in. And so just because you see it a lot doesn't mean that you should own it. Most of the preachers that I have purchased their libraries and they contain this set, they have not used the set one bit. It looks in perfect mint condition. It's been collecting dust. Who knows how long they've owned it, but it's been absolutely worthless in their studies. Another set uh, that people own a lot of times but don't use is the pulpit commentary set. The pulpit commentary is exhaustive. It is exhausting to read through. It has a study system basically built in that you have to learn the system and learn how to work with it in order to properly utilize the material. I think the pulpit commentary has some good benefits. I don't think it's the easiest set to work with by any means or the most beneficial set. I'm not saying it's a bad set or that people shouldn't uh, become familiar with it, but I would say this. You can get the set for free as an eSword module. Nobody is going to sit down and read through the entire pulpit commentary set. Not going to happen. There's no reason to waste anywhere from $100 to $150 on this set and put it on your shelf. Now, I say that. I've sold people pulpit commentary sets. I've owned pulpit commentary sets. Uh, I no longer own a set in my personal library because I didn't use it. And there's no sense of owning books that you're not going to actually use. It takes up about six feet of shelf space. Uh, you're going to need that shelf space for other books unless you want to fight for your wife and start stacking books all over the house and have those problems like I have with my wife. And you don't need that. If you want the pulpit commentary set, get it in a free downloadable module for eSword or for some other Bible software program and use it that way. It's not worth having on your shelf. Another set of commentaries that are recommended and quoted from a lot is Kyle and DeLitz on the Old Testament. Again, you can get this 
uh, for free in most Bible software programs, and that's how I would recommend that people get it and use the material. Again, I'm not saying this is a bad commentary set. I'm simply saying it's a set that a lot of people own and they don't read. Why don't they read it? Because it's difficult. This is a very technical commentary. It's not Greeky because it deals with the Old Testament, but it's very Hebrew-driven. And I don't think, I don't believe that most people who pick up Kyle and DeLitz understand what they are reading when they read it because they don't have a background of a theological background that allows them to operate with it. And if I was talking about sets of commentaries to get on the Old Testament, I would highly recommend James E. Smith uh, for a beginner set over Kyle and DeLitz. And again, that's not to say you shouldn't have Kyle and DeLitz. It's just saying it's very technical commentary. It's not easy to use, and you can get it for free with a lot of different Bible software programs. Kind of like with the pulpit commentary, there's no use of taking up that much space on your shelf when you can have it in a file and use it as much in the file as you would otherwise. A couple other sets that people own. Uh, used to be very popular is word study sets, uh, such as Woos word study sets, A.T. Robertson's word pictures of the New Testament, Vincent word studies. A lot of people own those. And I will say more brethren use word study sets than some of these commentaries that I've mentioned because they do topical studies and they do word studies. And these can be helpful in those areas. Again, most of these can be found in a digital format for free, and there's not the sense of spending about 50 bucks roughly per set to have these. If you like, you know, have it in your hand, that's fine. The caution that I give with these is that I don't know that word studies are the best way to approach the Bible. I, I encourage people to learn to study more from an expository standpoint trying to get the big picture view of the Bible and understand how the passage fits into the context both immediately within a book and within the Bible as a whole. And word studies tend to isolate passages out of their context. Um, I think there is times and needs for word studies to be done, and these are some helpful tools, but by and large, most people own these sets and never touch them. Preachers use them. Preachers quote from them. Preachers know how to use them. It's beneficial. But the average person, when they pick up this set, you're not just going to sit down and read Woost from cover to cover, or A.T. Robertson, for that matter, or any of these guys. It's a tool. When used properly, it is beneficial, but most people don't know how to use it or simply do not use it. So it just sits there on the shelf and collects dust. Okay, those are some sets, and we could talk about others. You, you may have your list. A lot of sets, a lot of sets you hear people quote from Adam Clark, uh, Albert Barnes. Those are good sets. I think our folks use those more, especially than the ones that I've mentioned. I would say again, though, that a lot of these are things you can get digitally for either free or little to no cost and utilize them just as much in a digital format as you would in a paperback format. Okay, let's talk about some individual titles rather than just commentary sets. One book that almost everybody owns. And nobody reads, and by nobody, I mean I only know three people on earth who have read the book, is the works of Josephus. Now, you can get this in a one volume, or a six volume, or a three volume, or a four volume. It comes in all different varieties of shapes and sizes, and everybody quotes from Josephus, but by and large, they're giving the same quotations, and they got those quotations not from reading Josephus, but from reading somebody else who read and quoted from Josephus. Okay, you're never going to sit down and read Josephus from start to finish. And the quotations that you're going to use, you readily find them available in other sources. 
Richard Bunner, George Batty, and Etienne Nichols are the only guys by name that I know that have read the book. There's one other guy, but I can't think of who it is at this moment that's read it. And most of those guys read it just to say that they had read it because they knew nobody had read it. And they wanted to be able to say that they had read it. So they sat down and did the excruciating, painstaking work to do it just to be able to say that they've done it. Totally not worth having in your library for if that's the only reason you're going to have it and if you're not going to use it. Now, that's not a big investment of money, but still, you can put whatever little about that is towards some other books. Another book that I find in a lot of libraries is the works of Philo, who was an early church uh, time period historian. Philo is never cracked, never touched, and he's quoted even less than Josephus. Another book that you hear quoted from, and people do read parts of this. I don't know of one single person. Now, maybe you can write me and correct me on that. I'd be happy to hear from you at christianresearcher at gmail.com. But I don't know of anybody that has sat down and read The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. A lot of people quote from that. And I want to say this about Edersheim. Edersheim's kind of dated and antiquated. Um, He doesn't give footnotes for everything that he teaches. uh, And that kind of is frustrating sometimes. I think there's some better resource material out there, but it is considered a classic. It is used as a reference source. It's not just sat down and people just read through it. And as a reference source, that's fine to have. You don't have much money invested in this. But this is certainly a book that qualifies as one that everybody owns and nobody reads. If you're first starting out building your library and you're wanting books that you're actually going to read, this is not one of them. And the reason I say that, I don't know how many pages are in Edersheim. I'd say well over a thousand. Trying to get a beginning reader to set out and read a thousand plus pages of material is an impossible task. I'll just say it is not going to happen. You're going to do good if you get a new beginning reader to read through 200 pages. It takes time to build your stamina. It takes time to build your interest, that self-discipline that is needed to make it through a magnum opus type of a book like Edersheim. And quite frankly, beginning readers are not going to do that. This is another book you can get in digital format and utilize as much in that format as you would having it on your shelf. A couple books. Now, this is going to raise the eyebrows of some brethren because this is kind of considered sacred ground that I'm about to touch on. But the fact is people own them and they don't use them. Books by Alexander Campbell or books about Alexander Campbell. For instance, Memoirs of Alexander Campbell by Robert Richardson. Now, This is one of Brother Richard Bunner's favorite books. I'm not taking a shot at Brother Richard. He likes it. He's read it multiple times over. He would gladly sit down and make an audio file of this book so that other people would get through the material. I think there is some helpful stuff there, some stuff that people need to read and understand and appreciate. But the fact is, most people who own the book have not read it like Brother Richard. Uh... The Christian Baptist by Alexander Campbell. A lot of people own that either as a set or a one-volume book, and they have not read it. The reason for that, I believe, is because of the antiquated nature of the language and the difficulty of picking it up and reading it. And it's not that it's a bad book. It's not that it's a book that people should avoid. 
It's just a book that people are not equipped to get the content out of. It's not a beginning place. This is for advanced students, uh, preachers of the gospel, people who are wanting to know about church history more and are willing to do the work. You know, Memoirs of Campbell, that's that's pro at least over 500 pages, I could easily say. It's probably more like an 800-page book. And again, it's going to be difficult to get a beginning reader to commit to reading through that much of church history. Another book, this is a book that people should read and most people do own but have not read. It's The Gospel Plan of Salvation by T.W. Brents. Now, it's a little bit antiquated in language. It's, talk, it's an attack on Calvinism. It's a good attack. The arguments are a little bit dated, and the language, the terminology has changed when you're talking about Calvinism, but the basic tenets are still the same. And The Gospel Plan of Salvation by Brents is a good book, a book that people should read, but quite frankly, a book that most people own and have never read. Maybe they've got started. I've talked to a number of people that have got started on it many times over, but have never made it to the end. And that speaks to, to me to the, a little bit of the difficulty and the nature of the book itself. This is a book that I would recommend getting some friends together and making a commitment, a pact to read through together so that you have some accountability and you work through it. You need to read through the book. Maybe you need some motivation and help to make it through. Again, this isn't necessarily a book that I would tell a beginning student that here's one that you have to read right now. I think we need to take some steps and work up to reading Brent's. Now, some older brethren would look at that and they'd think that's kind of foolish to say or say, you know, if you can't read Brent's, what's wrong with you? And that may be a fair assessment, but the fact is people are not prepared to read Brent's straight out the hatch. Another book along that same line is The Training of the Twelve by A.B. Bruce. This is found in most libraries. Again, I would say most people have not read it. Is it a good book? Absolutely. Is it one people need to read? Yes. Are they equipped to read it beginning out? No. This is more of what would be considered nowadays an advanced type of a read. The same would go for The Life and Epistles of St. Paul by Coney Baron Howson. Again, that's a book that I know Alan Bonifay and Richard Bunner have read cover to cover, maybe multiple times over. It's a really good source, but most people are going to use that as a resource rather than using it, you know, sitting down and reading it cover to cover. I think it has a place and a role as a resource. It's better utilized as a straight-through read, but it takes discipline. It takes work. It takes a certain level of background and reading ability to get through the book. Same can be said of The Scheme of Redemption by Robert Milligan. I think that's easier to read than Gospel Plan of Salvation by Brents or some of these others we've noted, but again, a book that a lot of people own and do not read. Notes and Miracles and of the, excuse me, The Notes on the Miracles and Parables by R.C. Trench. A lot of people own that, but they read it sparsely, sparingly. They only use it as reference material. Quite frankly, and maybe you hear a recurring theme of this, the reason a lot of people don't read these books is because they don't read, period. Another reason is because you need to build up to the level at which they are. They're not necessarily beginning reads. Having said that, there's something to be said for just learning the practice of self-discipline and trying to read above your head a little bit to get through the material. Uh, a couple more books that are, a lot of people own Christ of the Gospels by J.W. Shepard. I think that's a really good book. I don't think that's necessarily a real difficult read, but it's something that people own and don't read. 
You should read that. If you own that book, pick it up off your shelf. Read it. Maybe some of these other books you own. Maybe this is motivation to get busy and get reading it. Quit putting it off. Do the work necessary to get through it. A category, I would say, of books that a lot of people own out of this category but haven't ever read are debates. Most of our brethren own a debate of some sort but have never read through a debate. Or they own multiple debates and they've read one or two of them. I own a whole case full of debates and I haven't read nearly a fraction of them. Debates are their own special genre. It's Debating is a, is a style that we're not super comfortable with anymore. We don't like that style because we're a non-confrontational people and we need to learn how to be more confrontational than what we are. It makes people uncomfortable. People don't like debates, but it's something that you need to learn how to interact with your opposition's uh, position. We have the mentality of, if I disagree with someone, I'm not going to listen to them. Rather than, if I disagree with them, I want to listen to them so I know where they're coming from. I know their arguments, where their hang-ups are. Maybe I can help them see the truth on the matter. Maybe their position can help strengthen my position. And I shouldn't be afraid of differing positions, but I should embrace them. I should embrace the conflict for the sake of growth learning how to answer, learning how to be better equipped and prepared. That's what debates do, but we we are of a mindset to avoid conflict at all costs, and if you engage in conflict, that's kind of a mean and hateful thing. Now, having said that, there are some debates where people got kind of mean and nasty and hateful, and that turns people off. But there is something to be said for listening to the opposition and learning how to interact with it from truth standpoint. Debates are very good at doing that. It's a lost art form, and it's something that we need to to develop more. It helps develop the concept of critical thinking. I would strongly encourage to read through some debates. Maybe you own the Hoswell, the Hardeman-Boswell debate on instrumental music, or maybe you own, you know, some of Campbell's debates. Or um, there's a number of really good debates out there people own them it's not a lack of don't have access to them or don't own them they own them but they just never have sat down and read maybe it's time to start picking them up and set aside some time to go through debates my list of books may be different from somebody else's list of books but here are some titles i'm setting before you that maybe several of these are on your shelf and you've never gone through maybe you never will go through them I went into one brother's house and he had a nice library, but he hadn't read through the books. And as I looked through his books, I thought, I wouldn't have read through any of these books either. Was it because they were bad books? No. It's because they're of a style and content that a lot of people simply aren't equipped to work through. And if we own books that we aren't using, what good are they? We don't obtain knowledge through osmosis. We're not a good person simply because we own good books. That doesn't make us good Bible students simply owning them. If you're not using them, it's not doing you any good. When you recommend books to people, consider where they are in their Christian walk. Consider the type of background. Consider have they ever read books before, period. And take all that into consideration whenever you're giving your recommendations. Sometimes people need to be motivated and challenged to read above their head. Other times they need to have encouragement brought simply by accomplishing reading on a simpler level. 
hope you'll take these thoughts. I'd enjoy hearing some of your feedback, whether you agree, disagree, some books that you think maybe need to be added to the list, some that you disagree with where I've placed it on the list. My point in general is not that these are bad books, but they're simply books people own and do not read. Why is it that we're not reading the books? I hope you'll I hope you've enjoyed this and that you'll consider this material. As always, please check out our website, subscribe to the podcast, share this podcast with others. We're wanting to help motivate people to become better Bible students by by becoming familiar with materials that are out there that would be more beneficial than maybe some that they have been introduced to. And I hope we've accomplished some of that in today's episode. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and hopefully, Lord willing, we'll catch you again next week. Our sacrifice, he paid the he paid the price, the price, he paid it all upon the cross, no longer bound by sin or with eternal loss. He took my sin, washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave. I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.